this morning when Donald was leading the questions and comments this morning. Right at the end, he called this practice the exhaustion method. And I really like that. <laughs> I thought that was, I hadn't heard that before. I think he made it up. <laughs> but it was so, um, for me, so accurate, especially since I've been last week reflecting on these next two links in the path we're exploring, which I'll say something about. But um, just this repetition, you know, just have to do it again and again and again, you know, this kind of relentless returning. And sometimes people come into the interviews, you know, they say, I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. <laughs> you know, this kind of relentlessness of this repetition of this practice. And it's not just on this retreat. And we know that, you know, it's like when we're born, you know, from the time we're born and until we die. Just this, I suppose it's the, the wheel in some ways, the wheel of samsara. You know, just go round and round and round until we're off, until we get off. Which is what the Buddha says is possible for us. We went back into the teacher room afterwards and we all kind of chuckled about that, the exhaustion method. And John said that he remembered uh, Ch uh, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche saying that this path is like wearing shoes. You have to wear them until they wear out, you know, until they get worn out. Or he said uh, sometimes Trungpa would call this manual labor, you know, just trugging along again and again. So it fits somewhat with these um, next two links on this path. Because we really want to understand, in a way, we want to understand why we have to do this. You know, this hard work, which, you know, sometimes, it's not always hard work. Sometimes it's really wonderful when we just get into that groove, when we get into the zone. And it's wonderful, blissful, easy. But other times it's hard, hard work. So there must be a reason. There must be something that we're called to do, some, something that's calling us in our, in our heart, in our being. So these uh, next two links I'm going to explore this evening are uh, disenchantment and dispassion dispassion. And in the text it says, there's just, you know, it's a very simple text. We, it's not a text where there's much explanation about what these words mean or how we're supposed to practice with them. So disenchantment, um, nib nibida, uh, coming from what Donald spoke about last night, just it says in the text, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are is the supporting condition for disenchantment. That's all it says. And then it says, disenchantment is the supporting condition for dispassion. 
So those are the next two. And then the third one, which uh, the next one, which Gil will continue on with tomorrow night, is that dispassion is the supporting condition for emancipation, for liberation. So we're getting close now. Right? Y'all feel it? <laughs> Y'all sense it? <laughs> very close now to that liberation that you've been waiting for. You know. That's Gil's job, though. <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> so we really have so little to go on. You know, that really is the text. So we, in order to really understand these links, we really need to look at our direct experience. You know, this sense of disenchantment, dispassion, what is that? And of course there's many supporting uh, teachings, uh, the Buddha's teachings, that point to this, which I'll, I'll uh, go into this evening as a way to support this understanding. But we really have to keep sensing and feeling what's true for us in our own, on our own path. And for me, uh, interestingly enough, as I go through these links, I see how it does match my own experience. The same for these two links, and it may be true for you too, that there's something you can actually identify in your own experience, that there's some kind of lawfulness to this particular cycle this, uh, it's not even a cycle, it's a, because, because we jump off of these 12 links. They come to an end in this transcendent, dependent origination. So there must be something that resonates for you, which is why we want to teach these. So for me, I, I needed to go into my own experience in exploring this. And I noticed that when it was, uh, came, came for me to, um, to teach this particular part, I noticed that I actually felt a lot of passion for the dispassion. And I felt a lot of enchantment for the disenchantment. You know, there was, it touched something in me that brought a certain aliveness about this topic. It's like some, some kind of dharma energy, dharma aliveness. And let's see if there's something true about that for you. So the first one, this disenchantment, how we can become, at some point on the path, disenchanted with this repetition this relentlessness of experience Just again and again and again going on like this. So in this particular word, disenchantment, when we go back to the Pali, the Nibbida, the first part is comes from Nis, N-I-S, which means without, translated as without. It's a Pali word. And then it has the verbal root to find. So when you put those together, it means without finding. 
without finding. And there's a story from Andy Olensky, who is one of the Pali scholars, who, who takes these Pali words and really teases them apart and helps us understand them. And he, there was this one story in this particular um, uh, piece uh, document that I received where it explains this very well, what we're not finding, what is not, we're not able to find. And he uses the story of when a dog comes across a bone that has been exposed in the elements for many months, and this bone is bleached of any flesh or marrow, and the dog, seeing that it's a bone, begins to gnaw on it and gnaw on it, and at some point determines that it's not finding any satisfaction with this bone not finding, it's without finding any satisfaction. So the dog turns away and gets fed up, you know, tried to find something here, but there's nothing here. So it goes away, turns away. In the beginning, the dog is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously trying to find something in this bone that's satisfying. But when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted, spits it out, fed up, walks away. This is what happens at some point when we keep reaching out to experience, to find some lasting satisfaction, something that is going to make us feel gratified or fulfilled, and then maybe we feel that for a little bit, and then it changes. It, it's not there anymore. It loses its glimmer, loses its attraction, it loses its lure. It had it for a little while. You know, there was something about the experience that, oh, yeah, really, this is great. I really like this. And then it either dies away or we get bored or it didn't really hold what we thought it was going to hold. We just kind of lose interest and go look for something else. And that's what happens when something, some experience, something that we thought was going to do it for us doesn't do it, goes away or we lose interest, we go looking somewhere else. And generally we're looking, generally we're looking outside of ourselves to either things around us, our possessions, people, situations in our life, or we're looking to certain kinds of experiences, meditative experiences in this case, where we give some kind of value, we give some kind of uh, specialness uh, to it, say, that's it, right? So whether it's some kind of tranquility or calm or ease or um, rapture, some kind of bliss or empty, kind of when the mind stops or something, that's the experience. And then when we lose it, we want it back, we seek for it again, or maybe sometimes, and this happens sometimes, that we get a little bored. 
you know, we've heard that. People are having these sustained kind of rapture experience. It can be a little boring after a while, actually. Then it fades away, but then that desire, that craving returns, looking for something else. Last night, Donald was talking about how we needed to really study this craving, study this wanting. He says, you really, we really need to pay attention to it because it takes us away from our direct experience, from the, our capacity to really be here, to see things the way they are here. This craving, this, being, this, this force of desire that pulls us out of our experience here in its subtlety and simplicity, we need, is something we need to pay attention to. And why is it so important? Because it's this craving, it's this force that pulls us away that we are continually caught up in if we're not paying attention. We actually can feel like we are pulled again and again and again looking for this delight or this pleasure or something that we think is going to make us happy and then feel this kind of unsatisfaction when it doesn't last, this not finding, we're not finding. This is from the Buddha. Craving is the chief root of suffering. It is craving which gives rise to ever fresh rebirth and bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. And I like the way that's translated. It's like bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, finds ever fresh delight. And it's that kind of, where is it? Where is it? Where am I going to find it next that keeps us going? And then he says, where does this craving arise and take root? Wherever in the world there are delightful and pleasurable things, their craving arises and takes root. Arises and takes root. There's a kind of um, establishment of that within within our mind. And so when he says wherever in the world, he's mostly speaking about the six senses through the eyes and the nose and the tongue and the, 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 uh, the body and the mind. These senses of thought, you know, how we can get bound up in seeking the delight. But we see and we see here that, you know, we are left empty-handed. We're not really satisfied. We don't feel that deep fulfillment. We're not finding it if we keep looking to experience, experience of the six senses. I remember one time when I was sitting a three-month course in my early years, when a lot was kind of becoming apparent to me, a lot of insight was happening in the beginning. And I remember... um, 
this one time, and in, in, I am at Insight Meditation Society, and at different times people, for longer retreats, people would put sometimes little candies on people's uh, pillows. But not everybody's. You know, sometimes they would just be on your pillow. There'd be a little candy, and you have no idea where it came from. And one time there was a Reese's peanut butter cup that landed on my pillow. And I remember thinking, ah, this is really going to be an amazing experience. (laughs) Because I was really concentrated. I was really seeing things as they are. You know, I was really present, and I thought, I can really be present with this Reese's peanut butter cup. (laughs) And then I'll really have the full, blissful, pleasurable experience of this peanut butter cup. And so I actually took it back to my room, and I kept it there for a couple of days and just waited for the right moment. (laughs) And I knew it was there, and I was just waiting till, you know, that just when I could really settle in and and enjoy this amazing experience I was going to have. So the day came, and, you know... (laughs) You know how they're wrapped in these really lovely little gold tin foil things. And I remember, I can remember it so well. And I remember kind of, you know, peeling back that gold, you know, and it's just, it's just, you just can't wait. It's like it's gold wrapped, this beautiful thing. And and I remember peeling it back very mindfully, you know, and then took that bite and it was just so delicious took another bite, and then another bite, and it was gone. (laughs) And it was about three minutes. (laughs) And I remember I was so startled that it ended so abruptly, because I had, for these couple of days, had put so much investment in that experience, like that was really going to be something for me. And then... When that last kind of taste disappeared in my mouth, it was gone. And there was no going back. There wasn't any way I could retrieve that experience. It was gone. And I remember being really kind of startled that it just disappeared. And, and, and it was like, well, where, where did it go? <laughs> what happened? It wasn't enough. It wasn't what I anticipated. It wasn't what I expected. It, happened, it, it, it disappeared too quickly. <laughs> and I remember on, on that same retreat, I uh, remember when I would go to my meals, and, you know, these are the highlights, right, you know, when you're on a long retreat, you know, and I, would, I remember I'd go to my meals and, you know, have my plate of food, and again, eating very mindfully, but I would actually be seeing it seeing the food disappearing. It's like, I'm really enjoying it, it's tasting good, I'm, 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 I'm happy, <laughs> but it's disappearing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, my plate is empty. It's gone. It's like, where, this, where's that satisfaction that I was gaining, that I was getting? And it happened so many times, this kind of sense of just being left with nothing, this sense of being empty-handed, 
feeling like I was going to get so much from this, and then it's gone. Not finding, not finding the satisfaction that I thought that I was going to get. We see we're pulled, we can be pulled by these cravings, be pulled by these desires, but then, yeah, maybe we'll get something, but then, not very long. There was uh, one, one yogi who told me that there was this, you know, first time here at Spirit Rock, um, just being pulled to go up on the hill, particularly the, the platform up at the top. And you just, oh, that was just going to be such a wonderful experience. And just could feel the, the, the pull, actually the desire just pulling her up the hill. And then she sat on the chair on the platform, sat there for a few minutes, I was like, okay, <laughs> now what? You know, yeah, this is okay, but it's not like what I thought it was going to be. You know, I'm sitting here on the platform. It's kind of nice. And then she got up and came down. <laughs> you know, it's like not really finding that satisfaction that we thought was there. So things end. Things come to an end. They cease to be. And we, we might have this view, one of the, the wrong views or the unwise views that happens, the view that arises out of some uh, not clear seeing, is that we think things are going to have some permanence. Donald spoke a little bit about this last night, this sense of permanence, and that we, we, can, we want to invest something with permanence so it will give us the happiness or it will give us the security that we're looking for. And then again and again, Things just break up. No lasting fulfillment. I really, um, I read this on retreats a lot, mostly because I just like reading it. Because whenever I'm uh, sensing in and feeling into this quality of this insubstantiality of things, this kind of, well, no substance is kind of empty, empty of self-existence, empty of something. You know, let alone satisfaction. It's like, where is it? It's, it's, it's not even there. So when I, when I start to feel into and sense this insubstantiality of things, this, this, always, this particular uh, text always comes to mind. Um, it goes like this. All things conditioned are unstable, impermanent, fragile in essence as an unbaked pot. Like something borrowed or a city founded on sand, they last only a short while. They are inevitably destroyed like plaster washed off in the rains, like the sandy bank of a river. They are conditioned and their true nature is frail. They are like the flame of a lamp which rises suddenly and as soon goes out. They have no power of endurance like the wind or like foam, unsubstantial, essentially feeble, nothing to hold on to. The sage knows what is true reality and sees all conditioned things as empty and powerless all conditioned things as empty, empty of any capacity to give us any lasting 
satisfaction. We can't find it. We won't find it in any experience of the, of the, of the sights or the sounds or the taste or the smells or the feel, the touch of our skin or the thoughts that come into our mind and arise and pass. Essentially feeble, empty. So we begin to, as we practice, and we are paying attention, we are seeing things more clearly, we start to understand more deeply that there isn't really any point of reaching out. Why do I keep reaching out to these things? Why do I keep looking when I can't find anything? All these things lack any kind of solid, unchanging core. Empty. And yet we, through that particular view, we think things are made of some kind of substance, that somehow they are solid and unchanging, rather than having a sense of this flow of experience. The things are flowing, moving, changing. This is from Dilgo Kenshe Rinpoche, one of the great uh, masters in the Tibetan tradition. He says, when sunlight falls on a crystal, lights of all colors of the rainbow appear, yet they have no substance that you can grasp. Likewise, all thoughts in their infinite variety, even devotion, compassion, harmfulness, desire, are all utterly without substance. There is no thought that is something other than emptiness. If you recognize the empty nature of thoughts, at the very moment they arise, they will dissolve. Attachment and hatred will never be able to disturb the mind. No negative actions will be accumulated, and no suffering will follow. All things lack this solid, unchanging core. Mary Grace was pointing to this when she talked about the five aggregates. In such a lovely way, kind of, she spoke about connecting the dots, right? You know, each aggregate, like a dot, you can connect, and then all of a sudden there appears this kind of a sense of self. But yet, what's really there? So as we see this more clearly, we start to become disenchanted with the things of this world, There's a deep kind of knowing, insight, wisdom that it makes it so difficult then to keep reaching out. Maybe that or this. Maybe I'll find the delight there or the that will do it or this relationship or that person or this situation or that car or maybe if I get my body strong or just the way that we continually want to arrange the conditions around us to get them all lined up, set up, 
so that perhaps then I'll feel the satisfaction. I can remember for myself, this was a very, a very important part of my journey, where I could actually feel, kind of experientially, when my mind or this kind of impulse to lean towards something would arise, and then there was just the knowing, don't go there, don't go there. And energetically, there would be a kind of falling back into myself here, just kind of falling back into the center once again. And we can kind of feel this leaning. It's a, it's a very tangible, when you start to, to, to tune into this, you can actually feel yourself leaning out. It's almost like there's something pulling you from your head, you know, kind of towards the thing that you want or the thing that you think is really going to be great or pleasurable like that. Reese's peanut butter cup, you know, just pulling. And you can actually begin to feel the uh, almost cellular feeling of being pulled out and leaving. There actually can be, and then if we really believe it, we will leave ourselves, we'll leave our experience. And so we can begin to feel and sense into this where there's actually a resting back, actually a resting back here and a settling back into my body, my sense of being here now. And then looking here, looking back, turning back. This way we don't leave ourselves so much. This is what it means, in a way, to leave ourselves, to forget ourselves, to forget where the true happiness, the true satisfaction, the true fulfillment really lives, where it, where it is alive. It doesn't live in anything particularly. It's not, it doesn't live over there or over there. But perhaps it lives everywhere. And yet this way that we pick and choose this and that, right and wrong, good and bad, then we miss this possibility, this revelation of knowing that which lives everywhere in everything, that perhaps everything glimmers Everything shines with this revelation of whatever we want to call it, happiness or satisfaction. Everything has the potential to wake us up or bring that delight or where we can find joy. Everything, actually. So Mary Grace says that in the clarity of the knowledge and vision as things are as they are, the picture becomes different than we thought it was. She spoke quite beautifully about that, how the picture begins to change. And as that picture begins to change, and we're not thinking that this it's out there for us, there is this letting go, kind of a letting go of that movement of craving and clinging, attachment. And there's an inward turning. We turn back. 
this turning back. We're no longer enchanted with the things of this world in the way that we were. That enchantment goes away. Things lose their allure. And it's not just out there, but it's also the way that we're relating to our inner experience. The different kinds of experiences that arise are different mind states and emotions, and uh, whether they're ordinary experiences or meditative experiences. We can, get, we can cling on and get attached to that, too. I mean, that's what we see so much out here. And then the way that we take things to be mine, or me, or I. The sense of ownership, it's mine, like we do with our body, or our mind, or emotions. This, too, starts to break apart. And we're not so attached to having things a particular way. Bhikkhu Bodhi says that this inner turning is a serene and dignified withdrawal from phenomena. A serene and dignified withdrawal from phenomena. Just stop reaching out. Just stop going there. We know it's, it's a deep wisdom, it's a deep insight into the way things are which is why this disenchantment comes after the link of the knowledge and vision of seeing how things are, this clarity, this strong clarity. And the interesting thing is this detachment or this withdrawal really isn't a withdrawal from something. You know, because that's the way we might start to view it, is like I have to let go of, you know, my food or my relationship or, you know, my house or my car. We start to think in that kind of um, solid way again, like these are things that I have to let go of. But what is a thing? When we really reflect on what something is, it is just this, un- this changing, impermanent, nature. It has no solidity. We perceive things, we are in relationship with, we call them things, but all that's happening is really just a series of mind moments. Just this moment, then the next moment, then the next moment. There's no thing. Where is the thing? You know, because as soon as we think there is something, we'll want to grab onto it and hold it and cherish it, do something with it. And then when it starts to fade, the, that the lure starts to fade or the, starts to get old or die away like this body does, uh, or our, 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 our loved ones do, or the beautiful things we have in our life, we start to feel the pain of that, the suffering of that. And of course, there's nothing wrong with the emotions of grief and loss and fear and all that, the, that come up. But yet, we, even those, we start to hold them and see them and understand those emotions, those responses in a whole different way. It's a process. It's a journey. It's an unfolding that we are and this is. 
There's not thing. There's no thingness. So it's not a withdrawal from things, but it's really more of a movement into here, into this, into the way things are, moment to moment to moment, rather than getting caught up in the perception of solidity and ownership. And of course, this may bring about some fear, you know, as we start to really get a sense of, oh, there's nothing to hold on to. I can't, you know, the things that I always thought that I could, that I could rely on, that would really, that I could trust and that would be there for me, and, and then all of a sudden that perception starts to change, it can be unsettling, to say the least. When we start to really feel into the truth of the way things are. And yet this is very natural. It's very natural because we need, as we let go, we will grieve. We will grieve the letting go. We will grieve what we had. And the knowing deeply that we need to move on. If we really are committed to liberation, if we're committed to our awakening, if we're committed to the truth, then we know in our heart that the way is letting go. The way is letting go to everything, as I said in my first talk. This radical letting go of everything. But the interesting thing is that we think we have to let go of everything. You know, again, this is kind of the idea of thingness. But as we really see what's here and see what's true, everything comes back. You get to have it all back and more. And I realized when I gave my first talk and I said, you have to let go, be ready to let go of everything. And then after, after I uh, uh, went back into the room after the talk, I realized that I hadn't given you that piece. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> it's two weeks later, and I, you know, I didn't tell you that you get everything back. <laughs> You know, you had to kind of stew in that a little bit, you know, if you didn't already know it. Everything comes back. The only thing that you lose are the causes and conditions for suffering. It's all you lose. It's said that the Buddha said, What is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. The only thing that we lose is the striving and the seeking, the looking in the wrong place. So as we deeply understand and deeply sense that we cannot reach out to these things, these things anymore, and that there actually may not be any things anyhow to hold on to. It brings, it awakens us to the next link, which is dispassion, or 
viraga, viraga. And what happens is in that energy, that energy that was so bound up in the craving through the holding and the attachment, all that energy, when that gets released, there's a great energy that is released in the heart for liberation, which can manifest as a, a longing or a passion even. This, this passion for liberation, this passion for the heart's, the true heart's release, this yearning to be free, the yearning to be free and, and to get off this, this wheel of samsara. It's going round and round and round. And we're ready with this energy, we're ready to relinquish everything which brings about a kind of profound renunciation. Well, we're just ready to let go. And it's not an imposed renunciation. It's not a renunciation that comes from some kind of idea that this is the way I'm supposed to practice now on the path. But it's something that is, uh, arises from deep wisdom, deep insight into seeing things as they are, this knowledge and vision of the way things are where we aren't reaching out anymore and all that energy is released and there's a lot of power now to turn towards liberation. It's the only thing that matters. What else could matter? What else is there? <laughs> this, 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 this longing for this deep release. This is Suzuki Roshi who says, renunciation does not consist of giving up the things of this world, but in realizing that they go away. Does not consist of giving up the things of this world, but in realizing that they go away. So it's a natural renunciation. It's an easy renunciation. It's the only thing that makes sense anymore. And this power and this energy turned towards the Dharma, turned towards insight, turned towards wisdom, has this, this energy just to cut through, cut through some of these old habits, these old urges, these, whole, these old instincts that have kept us bound. And with more clarity and more energy and more vision, we just want to know, want to understand this energy for the Dharma. And the mind turns away. The mind turns away from phenomena that is changing and unsatisfying. And the mind turns towards that which is truly peaceful. There's a, kind, there's a, there's a sense, there's a knowing of that. That that is possible, that that is alive that which truly will bring us that which we have been looking for all of our lives. This deep fulfillment, this deep gratification. In the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the Buddhist texts, the Buddha says it like this. He says, this is the, peace, the peaceful. It's translated like that. This is the peaceful. 
This is the sublime. That is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of, of the foundations, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Cessation, this ending, ending, ending the craving, ending the clinging, ending the causes and the conditions that are bringing about the suffering, bringing about this, the, painful, the painfulness of our life. This is the peaceful. This is the sublime. And this ending, this cessation, this ending, it's, it's, it's really, at this point, it's, it's really a beginning. Right? How can it be an ending? What's really going to end? The conditions are still arising and passing. Right? It's still all here. We're just here in a wholly new way, relating to the conditions of our life in a radically new way, without the clinging, without the craving, the manipulating, the rejecting, the, the desire, the aversion all the strategies of the self, the selfing, that as all that quiets down, that activity, all that activity quiets down, this is a beginning, the ending that is a beginning. And it's not like there's nothing, no thing. You know, we say, well, there's no thing. It's not like there's nothing. Actually, there's a lot. It seems like there's a great deal of fullness, a great deal of activity, actually, a great deal of dynamism, a great deal of life. Then perhaps we can really begin to live what we call living, really living. I came across this quote. Um, it's from a book, uh, Women of the Way, by Sally Teasdale. And this is a quote from um, Tejitsu, from her story. And uh, Tejitsu is one of the uh, female Japanese ancestors. Uh, this book was put together, uh, bringing some of the wisdom and the teachings of the women of the way. And I find this um, particular piece that has been translated from Jujitsu very powerful. So I'd like to read it to you. She saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. She fell into the midst of everything. Perhaps not what you would expect.
because we are so afraid of letting go. Isn't it funny? Not so funny. Kind of tragic. <laughs> that the very thing that seems so hard to do brings us everything that we've ever wanted and more. In fact, everything. So I have this one more poem from a Chinese poet, which I wanted to read, so I'm going to read it and then probably end the talk. It's from Su Tung Pu, 11th century Chinese. The roaring waterfall is the Buddha's golden mouth. The mountains in the distance are his pure, luminous body. How many thousands of poems have flowed through me tonight? And tomorrow, I won't be able to repeat even one word. Nothing that we need to hold on to. Let's just sit for a moment. From Tejitsu. She saw that a rising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go, and fell into the midst of everything. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.